Hanukkah's over. The wrapping paper is still balled up in the corner. The menorahs have not yet been put away. There might be swearing on this week's episode. This has been your obscenity warning. This is Unorthodox, the podcast of Tablet Magazine. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Happy post-Hanukkah. Happy post Makkah. And Liel Leibowitz. Sevivon, so, so, so. So, so, so. And um, we are back in uh, the Flatiron District, back here at home in Argo Studios, where it seems like we have not been since 5776. I couldn't even remember what floor to get off of. Right, was it 12? Was it 9? Was it, I mean, we have been on the road so long. Our Jewish guests this week, two Jews, one podcast, uh, Taffy Brodesser Ackner, who writes for the New York Times Magazine and the New York Times Art Section. Uh, She spoke to us at our Manhattan JCC live show a few weeks ago, and we're finally getting around to that terrific interview. We also sat down with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth. He's a really Jewish guest this week. Super He's super Jewish. So super Jewish. British. Super Jewish. Stephanie Butnick, what's going on in Butnickiana? So I actually spent some of Hanukkah in Paris and went, to the, went to the Marais and had a nice meal at Mizenon. Um <laughs> I love that you go to Paris to, to eat at some to Israeli restaurant. pita shop. Um, and to eat the, we had Al Shani on the podcast a few months ago when the Chelsea Market location in New York City opened. Mm-hmm. And so the fun thing is each each location has like a, a geographically specific some items on the menu. So they had like a beef bourguignon pita that I didn't have, but I did have the ratat- ratatouille pita, which was the craziest and most amazing thing I've ever eaten. Bonjour, je voudrais le beef bourguignon avec le hummus, le trina, yeah, it le was, chips, le amba. It was just really, bien. really, really fun. And while I was there in the Marais, which is sort of like this Jewish-ish district, um, I got stopped by someone who said, are you Jewish? And because I have now come to terms with the fact that, yes, I am Jewish, and I can tell Chabad <laughs> people when they ask me, I said, yes, I am. Mais oui. I did this podcast with you guys. Have you heard of it? And he's like, and I was like, also, where are you from? He's like, Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, did you listen? And so basically my sister-in-law was with me and she was like, did you just like accost that guy? Like right. he asked me if I was Jewish. Was and like, I was excuse like, excuse me, are you yes, Jewish? <laughs> and have you heard my podcast, Unorthodox? You questioned his Chabad. <laughs> yes. You were like, oh, I'm Jewish, but are you even Chabad? It's like, did you listen? Did you get the email, the, the <laughs> newsletter? And I actually did while I was in New York get stopped. Um, and someone said, are you Jewish? And I'm like, I had this moment of like, have you grown have you have you grown you know as a person this year in my head and I was like yes I am and he said do you need candles it was Hanukkah also and I said I have candles but thank you and he said okay happy Hanukkah and I said happy Hanukkah and I walked away being like what a nice interaction I just had a wonderful encounter two fellow Jews and and of course my my next thought is that's so much easier for women because you either take the candles or you don't take the candles with men it's like well this was Hanukkah candles alright I'll put on tefillin this was different they were only giving out Hanukkah candles so here's my last question about your trip to Paris Stephanie is when when Chabadniks are are coming up to you in in France do they lead with French or do they say like are you hey hey, you Jewish they're like yo Um, no we were in the Marais it was a pretty touristy area yeah, I, see. Um, we, I don't know. We somehow screamed American. Because I want the foot to a juif. Who's yeah. a juif? Like, that's what but, but, I. But if I'm asked that in French in, in Paris, I'm like getting the F out of there. It's like, <laughs> They're like, have you seen our velodrome? It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> 
Speaking of which, the uh, the I'm, I'm just checking my inbox at like literally seven minutes ago, press release from the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. It, the headline, International Fellowship of Christians and Jews quickly mobilizing to help more French Jews make Aliyah. Anti-Semitism has once again spiked in France and as the Yellow Jacket protest movement has been gaining momentum, blah, blah, blah. We want to bring more Jews to Israel. So I love that the evangelicals are, are using... Any unrest in France to say, we will help you move to, like, you know what I can't get out of free my head? tickets to Israel. And I know that's very shallow, but the way that they call themselves the, the Fellowship of Christians and Jews, like, all I could think about is, like, The Hobbit. Like, <laughs> The Fellowship of the Ring, like, Lord of the Rings, right? It's like, and now we will walk through perilous land down the Champs-Élysées. And all I think of is Roy Moore's, quote, rabbi, who, who, we who whom they fellowship, whom they fellowship with. Uh, Leo, what's up with you in this uh, post-Hanukkah season? Um, I am working on my Stan Lee book. Right. Uh, I have spent two weeks doing absolutely nothing but reading uh, comic books, which is to say I've been having an amazing Hanukkah. Just, I'm very happy right your now. Your kids walk in. Dad, what you doing? Well, so uh, this Lily is, is work, son. Finally, finally into this, right? So she's reading stuff and she comes and she's like, this looks good. Can I trade you what I'm reading right now? I was like, yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> uh, so two two stories from the Oppenheimer Hanukkah home front, both of them featuring five-year-old Anna. Now, you guys remember uh, the story I told a couple of years ago, right? When um, when we were, you know, driving down the highway, right? And we spotted a Christmas tree on top of a car. And then the kids started- well, They spotted... say Christ- those are Christian people? And we said, well, we said, well, it must be a Christian who got a Christmas tree. And then we start, the kids start spotting Christmas trees on cars, like on their spot, Jersey Turnpike. Spot the goyim. And, and they start saying, dad, there are Christians everywhere. So update, like- you know, still Christians everywhere. Christian spotting <laughs> 2.0. Here we are in 5779. Nine. And uh, you're Hanukkah gonna get fired for that. So be 2018. careful. <laughs> and um, and you know, Hanukkah came early, and there were some lights on our street. Some of them were Hanukkah candles. Some were early Christmas lights. But now, in the few days afterwards, the Christmas lights are really coming out on our street in New Haven. And I'm walking the dogs with Anna last night and it's five or five thirty, but it's already quite dark. And she says, dad, well, that house has lights. They must, you know, Hanukkah's over. So they must be Christian. I said, yes. And then she said, dad, that house has lights. They must be Christian. I said, yeah. And then I see her eyes pan down the entire street and then sweep up the other side of the street. She said, dad, there's Christians everywhere. And I said, <laughs> yes. And she says, and they live all around us. I said, yes, they do. And so she's kind of, and she loves Christmas and, you know, like any, any good Jew. So she's excited to discover that there are like Christians all around us. But wait, then it gets better. We walk a little bit further. One of the dogs, you know, makes some poop and we pick it up. We carry on. A Christmas poop. Christmas poop. And she says, dad. I said, yes, Anna. She says, dad, I think when I grow up, I want to marry a, a, a Christmas man. I said, oh, you mean a Christian? Right, 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 Dad, a Christian. And I said, oh, okay, that's fine. You know, why do you want to do that? And she said, well, because I love Christmas and I love Hanukkah. And if I marry a Christmas man, then... <laughs> Christmas um, man, Christmas then man. celebrating with Christmas. his tree tonight. Then, um, by the way, uh, listeners, if you write a song, the best song called Christmas Man, which involves my daughter Anna Graham to marry a Christmas man, uh, we'll get some free unorthodox swag. So send us send us the wave file to Moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. And I think it's going to be um, a long, long night. <laughs> so she says, Dad, I want to go marry a Christmas man because I love Hanukkah and I love Christmas. And then they'll get to do both. And I said, okay, well, you know. And she says, and Dad, I know I know how, how we'll do it. And I said, okay, how will we do it? And she said, well, I'll do the Jewish stuff with them and he'll do the Christmas stuff with them. I said, okay. And she said, so Dad, I will take the kids to shul and do the Jewish stuff by taking them to shul and 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 we will have, you know, Jewish prayers and we will do Marif. 
<laughs> but only Marv. And but Christmas men will not be right. there from Marv. And then she said, oh, "Wait, and Dad will be home doing the Christmas stuff, which is waiting for Santa Claus." And I thought she has actually like intuited the landscape in which she lives, which is that she, the Jews she knows, she knows from actual like prayer and synagogue and the Christians she knows as people with treat. And then wait. And then the, I the, like it. the coda is, and dad, that way also I'll be able to find out if Santa's real. <laughs> A Christmas man will tell me. Cause she thinks that Santa might be real. She's not sure, but like the tooth fairy, she thinks it's possible. She's an agnostic. She's hedging her best. Why, She's like, why I'm not? five. Why not? Why not? You know? So news of the Jews in the Oppenheimer house. Uh, Anna has announced her future intermarriage and we, it's some. between Christmas and Hanukkah. It's between Christmas, Christmas and Hanukkah. man. Uh, other news of the Jews. Stephanie, what you got? So The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is back on Amazon. And if you watch the third episode, you may see very briefly at the end some familiar faces. Uh, Josh Cross, our producer, and I had the very fun opportunity to be extras on Mrs. Maisel. (laughs) We filmed it back in May. And we didn't know if it was going to make it in. And we got word once it came out. How exciting for you is this, by the way? So it's it's fun for me because I love, you know, the show's great. It's sort of like it's something that really aligns with what we do here, right? Like funny Jewish stuff. Um, so Funny Jewish stuff, well-dressed. Yes, well-dressed. Um, it was also just a cool experience. So um, our producer, Josh, knows Scott Ellis, who is directing a few of the episodes this season. And he basically set it up for us. And I went for a fitting at the Steiner Studios. And it was the, – I've never done – you know, I'm not – it's very serious. And I was talking to some of the costume people there and they were saying that they've never worked on a show that was so dedicated to getting the time. Like, the, the like so what are some of the details like? Like that I wore a, a, a 1950s bra. He must have. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, like everything was was very 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 authentic, and oh, I was down, I was just walking across that, the huh? the screen for one second, like in the back, you know, in the background of a shot. So, so I was I was fully very period specific. Do you have to do it with the posture of nineteen fifty four. Yes, right. yes. So, very pointy. <laughs> and the irony then being that as as our as the J crew has been discussing in uh, in the Facebook group that the show is not always so accurate in other ways. So for, you know, a lot of commentators have made the point that they, last season, you know, they throw around words like asshole, which was not really used uh, yet in American culture at that time. Um, they, she uses a lot of likes and upspeak, which women, which people didn't do back then. She sounds like one of us today, and that's not actually the way people they're, talk. They're kosher butcher sells pork they're in, kosher in that butcher opening pork. scene. So in um, other words, the Kabbalat like... Shabbat is some weird kind of conservative minchag that this fancy Upper West Side family wouldn't probably German Jewish wouldn't have gone to in other uh, words uh, they're really into the aesthetics and know very little about the religion so that sounds about right that sounds about but right but here's the thing I don't mind people got upset about the language It's, but it's not a, a documentary like I'm okay with them you know Midge says I'm literally something and right. her dad says you are not literally you are not literally starving and that to me is like a fun thing to watch. And I understand that it probably was not said. And the, the, the cursing, the amount of cursing is obviously um, not, it's probably maybe it's not. It's 2018 level yes, cursing, but right. I'm enjoying it in 2018. So this is a funny thing. Um, Emily Nussbaum, the New Yorker writer, tweeted something very, very good that she said, can I ask a weirdly specific Maisel question? Do you think Midge's parents are German or Russian Polish? Are they from the rich German Jewish ranks of uptown New Yorkers? Or are they poor Polish Russian Jews made good through education? They seem like a conflation of both sets to me. So that's actually more interesting to me, like watching this, the new season, I'm halfway through. How do you answer that question? It's a good I question. I don't know, because they seem to be very well off. 
The father is a professor, which I don't know necessarily. Yeah, but they have they have too much warmth to be to be to Germans. be yuckish. Yeah, right. right. Other news of the Jews. I'm just going to give you two bits. First of all, um, uh, there was a high school in New York City. Uh, it's the the LaGuardia right arts high school, the yeah, one from known fame. for fame, uh, which is not putting Nazi armbands on the Nazis in Sound of Music. Where the no. point is that they are Nazis. So here's what's happening. That'd be very offensive. No, don't did. complicate my simplification, I'm, I'm, Stephanie, with your I'm truth. Compl- here's a, like the point of the Sound of Music, which I actually didn't even realize because I think I watched it when I was younger, and I finally watched it again. And I was like, oh my god, they're Nazis. This takes place when, and they're Nazis. <laughs> So when I first watched Casablanca, and I was like, oh, this is a Holocaust movie? Why didn't you tell me? I would have watched it sooner. Um, so basically, the the principal of the school has ordered that the props be removed. They're going to appear in two scenes. So symbols, the Nazi armband and flags will be in two scenes. But it's kind of weird because you're like, you actually can't do the sound of music and take out the Nazis. It's like cabaret. Like, it's all this stuff is is context it's Can about actual history that actually happened i am so fucking happy that i will be dead when these kids will be like in power because like today's no. 16 year olds when they are like running government i am so glad to know that i will no longer be here to have to deal no, but there was with someone the who's in the show humans. a sophomore told the daily news he says this is a very liberal school we're all against nazis but to take out the symbol is to try to erase history obviously the symbols are offensive but in context they are supposed to be so the students understand right it's, it's always some it's well-meaning actually, adult yeah. liberal. But I think if it, it's forcing them to realize, like if it, if if this if this well-intentioned but bad decision is causing a student to say, no, actually we do need. The, it's important, you know, not to erase this stuff. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, if you shut your it, optimism, <laughs> uh, for shame. Liel, if they shut their school down, at least the kids can get jobs at bimbo bakeries where they will not be making kosher baked goods anymore what this week in news of the jews they are this big mass production uh, bakery operation that makes products under the brand names arnold's like arnold's rye sarah lee stroman fryhoffers entenmann's they are dropping their kosher's because it's just i guess too expensive and they hate the jews and i don't know if they hate the jews but so entenmann's is no longer kosher so, so this is the thing and it kind of didn't happen it happened a little bit a little while ago but people are now just realizing they that, sort like, of gaslit us like oh wait this if you look at the side of your entenmann's box and you're like wait where's the chaf like where is the the thing i look for there yep. was no big announcement. That's what's kind of messed up. So yep. so here's um, someone speaking on behalf of Bimbo Bakeries USA. To enable more efficient operations, we've made the decision to remove kosher certification from our bread products. This change will not impact the quality, freshness, or availability of our products, end quote, yep. except that people will not buy them to anymore. Enable, <laughs> to enable some more efficiency of our production line, we will no longer cater to the Jews. Right. And Arnold's rye, of all things, like that's the rye you buy when you can't get fresh and, and really good rye. Also, the problem is this is actually like a business a business thing because these are conglomerates who now own all these companies and they want to produce them in factories efficiently, which means it's you can't certify one factory because it produces all these different things now. And it's just it's just kind of sad. Yeah. You yeah. know what, Bimbo? Guess what we'll not be eating on Passover. Right. If you can't have the Arnold's bread anymore, but you still want kosher food. You know where you can go? Our new supporter. This is actually a really nice bit of news to the Jews. We it are is. proud to have as our sponsor, J-Chef. Uh, J-Chef is one of those home meal delivery services, like, you know, all those others that we're not going to name because they're not kosher. But this is one that that all of us recently cooked with. Uh, Stephanie, what did, what did you make with it? I had the maple glazed salmon and garlic mashed potatoes. It was really, it was really good. I've actually never done a, a food service. I don't usually make kosher food, but I wanted to try it. And 
I didn't notice a difference. Right, it was I mean, actually delicious. I guess for That's Stephanie's seal of approval. No, I, I think it's true. I mean, I think I also think that it's really nice to have a kosher alternative. Yeah, it's kind of amazing it took this long. I'll just say quickly that um, Sid was like, "Wait, you're cooking tonight?" Because <laughs> I have cooked approximately three times in our. I I should say I fold laundry and I change a lot of diapers, but she's a better cook than I am. And division of labor. But uh, when the when the J Chef package arrived, I made it and it was a delicious uh, summer pasta. And then I made the sun dried tomato pasta. I made both of them because they were each uh, they were each for four, and we have seven of us. So uh, you know, J Chef, welcome aboard. So you know. I I don't doubt that it was great, but for us, it was even more of a delight because I do keep kosher and and kosher meat, A, could be very expensive, B, not the easiest thing in the world to find. Um, And so to receive a big box full of delicious steak and great chicken and then just make tremendous recipes was really a treat. Jay Chef. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Shalom. So my buddy Scott, uh, who's, who's a wonderful, enterprising, caring Jew, uh, started this this you know philanthropic e- effort to get young Jews really into Jewish music and make their own Jewish music. And you know, I'll admit, at first when when he told me about it, I was a little bit skeptical. You know, how good could music made by thirteen year olds sound? And then he played me the files, and they were out of this world. And so I decided I really wanted to listen to some of that music. Scott, for many years, you were a professional musician, and then an idea pops into your head about using music to bring kids closer to Judaism. I was thinking about a kid sitting in his, in his room playing music on the guitar when he's, you know, teenage angst years, and also being at synagogue on, on Shabbat, and then the rest of the week... Also in the room thinking about... I love, by the way, that the kid you imagine goes to Shul and Shabbat. It's already highly inspiring. Sure. (laughs) So I just had this idea. How do you bring these together? Half the kids who auditioned wrote their own music. Most of them were playing their own piano, guitar. So we had 70 kids from across North America. It's, It's kind of like what you might hear on the radio before it gets produced. So what happens next? The judges were able to narrow it to 12 finalists. So between now and the 17th, you get to vote for the people you like. I mean, and then the auditioners themselves who are finalists, they get to promote the heck out of it. So our listeners now have five days to go on. The easiest one is BeAJewishStar.com. And then right at the top, you click the button and it'll take you right to a finalist page. I want some samples. I mean, that's, wow. Gotta tell you, man, the kids are all right. But I gotta tell you, I take, I take one issue. I just don't think it's complete because there is one seminal Jewish musician that was not invited to participate. I'm talking, of course, about myself. Well, I was drunk the day my dad got out of prison. (laughs) And I went to pick him up in the rain. But before I could get to the station, 
in my pickup truck We got run over by a damn old train I wonder why you don't call me You never even call me by your name <laughs> So um, do I collect my prize now? Do, do I go to Hollywood? It, it's a it's a competitive uh, <laughs> contest here, Leo. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. One of our Jews this week, Taffy Protester Ackner, who is a terrific magazine writer. She writes for the New York Times Magazine. She also writes pieces for the Daily Arts section of the Times. We had the great fortune to talk with her a few weeks ago at our most recent New York City live show at the JCC of Manhattan. Of course, have a listen. Our first Jewish guest is Taffy Brodesser-Ackner. She is a features writer for the New York Times, and she is the writer responsible for some of your favorite celebrity profiles. Taffy, please come on up. <laughs> Melissa McCarthy. Should we start with her? Sure. Yeah, so this is like casually cover story, no big deal. It's a casual cover story. Can you cover. explain to us, like we read celebrity profiles, how do they happen? Like, how do you get connected? Is it like, how do you ne negotiate with them over what you can talk about? Then like, just how does this? There's nothing like that. There's no negotiation for what I'm allowed to talk about. There's, I, I've never worked for a place that puts restrictions on what I'm allowed to talk about. Although there are some, there was this, there's some where the publicist will say to me, just don't ask about this. And I was like, you can't say that to me. I'm not like, now I have to tell my editor that you said that. Right. And the publicist will say, no, 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 no. Pretend I didn't say that. And I said, I can't pretend you didn't say that. I'm not a publicist. I'm a journalist. Um, but the way they come about is that an editor, for a celebrity thing, an editor knows that something is coming out. Uh, an album, a movie, a TV show, and asks me if I'm interested, and I say, if I say yes, they put me in touch with the publicist, and the publicist sets up times. When I was at GQ, someone did that for me, so I just had to arrive, but now I set up my own times, like, like Superman when he decided to be regular. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this whole question of what do you do with them during the profile? You tackle that in the McCarthy profile yeah. because she said, well, let's go to like a rage room. And then the yeah. rage room was closed. And so she said, well, let's do like skydiving. Indoor skydiving. Indoor skydiving. Yeah. And, you know, I remember that like in a recent profile in the Times by another writer like Justin Theroux said, let's go to the top of the Empire State Building and just talk, right. talk there. There's always this sort of awkward. Let's go thing. do relatable human things. Yeah, let's go do relatable. Or like, let's do a metaphor. Yeah. Let's just go find a metaphor for me. Like, 
how do you break out of that? How do you do you just be like, no, let's actually just, you know, talk, let's schmooze, let's right. text. What do you do? I was shocked that she wanted to do I hadn't done anything like that in so long. At GQ, the last story I did at GQ was Rob Pattinson just trying to figure out what we would do. And it was, should we go, should we go to a spa? Like, yeah, yeah, I'll be in a bathing suit with you. I kept calling him on it. Like, I'll go, I'll go with you and be in a bathing suit. Should we have colonics was his other one. And I really, and should we do ayahuasca? And at some point. Wait, would you have done those with him? I'll tell you what happened. At some point I realized he is either trying to incapacitate me and make it so that I can't ask him any questions or he thinks I'm going to say no so I said yes to everything and then I went and I bought a I brought with me a bag of drugs and I said look here are some drugs should we do these drugs and he yeah and he was like I don't think we're gonna do the drugs and I said I didn't think we were gonna do the drugs there were there were mushrooms and I don't know what would have happened. I just knew to turn my tape recorder on and hope that I kept it on <laughs> in case that I became a you know I'm serious about the work, right? So, <laughs> no, no. So, so do you I think, don't like, know. I haven't done so many drugs. Wait I'm a not, second. I'm not closed. So, to sorry, I mean, we could tell anyway. that was true when you said, "Here's a bag of drugs." <laughs> a bag of some drugs. Before we move on, so so you had a bag of drugs at your house? I, like, I, no, it was in LA. It's in the Times I, offices, Mark. And Everybody you're knows a journalist that. and you know about preparation. I, I, you I believe I, I, the word is I scored. I scored <laughs> some drugs. So what you're saying is you called Tom Friedman. He's like, can I have a bag of drugs? I, yeah. And he's, and he's like, like has them. Yeah. yeah. Can yeah. you like expense the drugs? <laughs> Can I expense the drugs? I can expense the drugs and the food that I eat when I'm high on the drugs. Like, there is nothing that you can do to make it, like, and then the, wherever I end up sleeping, you have to pay for that, too. Like, so you're, yeah. like, down but for wherever But I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I stayed sober. What happened to the drugs? I gave them to a friend. <laughs> I gave them to a friend. I gave them to a friend. My husband was very disappointed that I had scored the drugs and said, please do not travel with the drugs. Um, although he calls it dope. And he said, don't travel with the dope. And I said, I won't travel with the well, dope. Well, he's foreign, right? He thinks all American drugs no, he's, are dope. No, he's American and still calls it dope. It's, it's how we live. So I, I have um, a, a good friend named Lily Brett, who's a great uh, rock and roll writer, one of the first women rock critics. Uh, and to read her accounts and, and kind of hear uh, what things used to be like for her. It's like if you want to interview Jimi Hendrix, you went over to Jimi Hendrix's house yeah. and you spent a couple of days and yeah. you wrote and you wrote about Jagger. It's a very different world for you, right? There's a, there's a real remove, there's a whole machinery of publicists. Uh, celebrities have gotten very wise to the role as celebrities. Do you feel that present or does all of that melt away the second it's you and Melissa McCarthy just hanging out in the living room? I think the thing that's changed is that now getting those things is part of the gig. Like it used to be that you just got those things because people were interested in being learned about, and now they're not. So once you're in there, you have to spend a lot of time staying there, and you have to spend time becoming someone that they want to take to the to the next level. I don't know that how that sounds, but like who who they like. Your job is to stay for as long as humanly possible. And sometimes that is socially uncomfortable. 
Um, every time it's socially like, good night, good night, Melissa. I'll just stay here on the couch. I'll see you in the morning. I was like, we're not, we're not done talking. Is my thing, or, or I'm so hungry. Shouldn't we eat? <laughs> is another thing, and just yeah, and slipping them my phone number and saying like, if you think of something you should have said. And then there's your, like, it's disgusting, but it's how I do it. I'm like, I'm like, it's like, I don't know, yeah. So you just like guilt them into it. Like, I want to give you my number. Just stay in a way that they, like, that is socially inappropriate. I think that's what I'm comfortable with, social inappropriateness. So then you have to write about these people, right? And like often not super nice, flattering things the way I think a lot of people who want to be loved and want to be adored, yeah, like us all. So that, what is that like to sit down and be like, I just spent a week with this person in their home and now I need to like... It takes a few days. It takes a few days to remember that you, wor- you actually work for this editor and you have to spend time with the editor and the editor has to be disgusted with the stars in your eyes and like the smiliness. And they look at my pictures. Like, and then you're like, oh, right. I'm not, I'm not, yes, I'm not that person's friend or anything else. And now I have to write something. And when I write, like, like, the, thi- like the wanting to be loved thing, I'm so eager to be loved by my editor and by like the, the audience that that's what takes over. That's have you sad. ever it's held a little pathetic? Well, it's okay. Comes, it's comes okay. I'm, I'm at peace with it. Have you ever held back though on something that you know you're sitting there and say, "Oh, that'd be a really great item in the story," but I, I can't do it to pour Justin through, to pour <laughs> Gwyneth. Um, yeah. Can't write that one embarrassing thing. I this this is the truth. The truth is is that I um, I try. I was raised in a religious family. I went to Jewish schools, and I try to make my work a function of my Jewish values. You know, I, I grew up in these communities where there were these like very generous, charitable people who were good. And then they'd go and they were lawyers and they were cutthroat and they were unethical during their day. And I thought like, maybe I could be like, maybe I could be a, like a, a mensch throughout my whole thing. So if it's unfair or if I, or if they were saying it like Gwyneth and I, Gwyneth and I were overserved by her butler. And there was a point at which it was not okay to use the amazing things she said <laughs> that I will have to die knowing just by myself. What, what did the butler serve again? <laughs> it was just, it was just wine. Like I know that I can have two glasses of wine without it being a problem. But there was a point at which it couldn't have just been two glasses anymore. Well, didn't like it just like turn, keep appearing yeah, in your glass? Yeah, you turn around yeah, and it's, we it's say full to, again. We say to How our butlers all again? the time, like, just don't I know. Start. I mean, my butler knows. <laughs> <laughs> Jersey butlers are much better than Hollywood butlers. Are there moments when you have to not like be a mensch, as you said? I try not to be. I try to ask myself that question. Like, am I putting decency out into the world? I think that I came online as a as a as someone who writes profiles at a time when there was TMZ and at a time when people were tricking people into saying things. And I thought, like, can you write an interesting story without something that is that you you ascertained or were able to get unethically. So who is like your dream Jewish, biblical or not, like celebrity, like throughout history? I mean, Lot's wife is dead. <laughs> I would write, I, I would you, write the hell out of all. I, I would write story? the Lot's wife. So last night, <laughs> for reasons I won't go into, we don't sit around talking 
Torah and Tanakh all the time in my house. For reasons I won't go into, I'm talking with my eight-year-old Clara about the story of Lot's wife. It turns out she thought that Lot's wife was turned into a salt shaker. Amazing. In the William Sonoma catalog version. She I know. Was. Like no, a we beautiful were watching, one. I'll tell you, we were watching the Bim Bomb video that shows Lot's wife being tur animated, turned into a pillar of salt. Lot's wife looks back and becomes, and Clara says, Why is it this big, like enormous, tall, craggy lump of salt? And I said, Well, that's a pillar of salt. And she said, But Lot's wife was turned into a salt shaker. <laughs> I just, like, who knows what pillar means until you're yeah. much older? I don't know what the Hebrew is. It might mean salt shaker. It, it probably does. It probably does. I would say she's right. So. <laughs> I, I am a, a, a religious reader of your work. I'm a huge fan. Thank and you. have been since the GQ days. Thank you. Um, I have a theory of what's going on with you. I'm going to put you on the sofa here for a minute. As you know, I reached out to you when you wrote that Friends in Peace. I like, yeah. I think I was still on Twitter maybe. No, I found, I was off Twitter. I was so I like right email. around when you were like, uh, it's over. It was, it was around the time of my Twitter breakup. Um, and, but before my Facebook uh, breakup. That's the biggest celebrity Mark could think of. It's like Jonathan Franzen. And so <laughs> that's what the kids are all <laughs> into. So you wrote, I don't know. It's not Franzen. We're in a neighborhood where a lot of people read this piece that Taffy wrote about Jonathan Franzen and about how he's really <laughs> offline. And Euphemism. Like actually does. Like <laughs> Jews read East Coast the Franzen values. Story. It's people with uh -huh. cosmopolitan Loud values. Loud and clear. And... It was this profile about how he's really kind of offline, like really doesn't read so a lot of what people say about him. And I was so moved by this profile. And I thought, oh, clearly what Taffy's saying is, she's she's not quite saying it, but she's clearly saying, let's hold this up as as a an admirable and possibly yeah. alternative way of living. I knew other people. I wasn't saying that. I no, said well, I, I knew people. I think there's this line in there where it said I would have... I would drink his blood if I could. I How was, much clearer can I get? <laughs> I think it was fairly explicit. But I knew people who said, no, clearly she's trying to show how smug he has to be to think that that's an okay way to be in the world, to not be accessible to his fans. She's subverting that position, but tweaking it. I said, oh, no, no, I think she's being more literal. She would actually drink his blood to get some of what he has. Then in this Melissa McCarthy piece in, in the magazine this week, you, you talk about how she you know, it has a hard time, how comedies have a hard time now because everyone is so in the political cycle. Yeah. And I felt you were kind of saying the same thing. In was, a way. It's kind I of was. the same piece, which is we all have to detach a little bit more and turn CNN off and go see more old Harold Ramis comedies. I mean, that we have to get our lives back and be able to laugh again. And it seems to me like there's a through line through a lot of the work you've been doing of saying like... I'm exhausted. Yeah. I'm exhausted from this world. I'm ex I like... I. Like, the thing about a profile is that it has to exist in the world where it is. And I found friends and very admirable. And I do think his smugness is the thing that allows him to be, like, I think you're both right. Yeah. Um, I think whatever it takes to get you to where you want to be, what was remarkable to me about him was that he very much is someone who, who he's old enough to know that there's a better life out there and he's successful enough. That's the thing, you can't miss that, that he's successful enough to not have to be online peddling his wares. But I do think, like I am exhausted and at every point you spend hours and hours with someone and the way you know who your profiler is is by what they choose to write about. And you're right, these are, these. are this is on my mind all the time. How much should I be online? How much should I be interacting with people? Yeah, so I read these pieces, and as as an aspiring friend of yours, I mean, this is the first time we've met. I mean, I, I've kind of wanted to great. say, like, 
you can get offline. Like you, you wouldn't lose your job at the Times Magazine and the Times if you said, I'm not going to do this social media stuff anymore and just went and rewatched Freaks and Geeks. Like it, you know, which I know you love because. I'm okay with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like why, it sounds, why don't you do less of that stuff? Because I enjoy it also, because it's both of those things. Because it also, when I'm writing for eight hours in a day, it's so nice to have proof that I exist by putting something out into the world and having it back. Because not everything needs an article, but you can just put a thought out there because community is really a wonderful thing and you don't always get it. And I live in this amazing time where somebody who prioritizes time with her children and time at home and time in sweatpants could also be someone who is writing a lot and I love interaction. I'm not the kind of writer who doesn't. So I suffer from it, but I suffer from a lot of things. I suffer from a lot of decisions I've made for the better, from the sweatpants to the children to like, like all of those things are real things that I am ambival I'm ambivalent about everything. There is nothing I can tell you that I've done ever that was the best. And that like there was that there's no alternate. You to Gwyneth. Multi more. I know. I know. <laughs> she knows something. Gwyneth knows a lot. I know. Gwyneth, I thought, you know, like the other thing I think about when I write these profiles is that the only time I am ever totally focused with somebody is with a celebrity. Like I sometimes look outside myself and I see myself with Gwyneth or I see myself with Franzen and I think I wish I could give this to my husband. I wish I could like, I wish I could be here. I wish he was that interesting. No, 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 my husband's and very interesting. Is that what you're getting at? Or, you know, I, it's very... my husband is wonderful. I'm sure he but is. But what I'm Which saying, is why I'm asking, that's not what, true. What it's, that I, that? it's that I have to, it's that that's my job and I'm alone and there's a tape recorder. And my kids get me in a much more distracted form. Look, I wish I saw my wife as much as I see Liel. <laughs> we both know that. Well, so final question. Uh, it, is it your birthday? Did we get that right? It's my birthday on Friday. On Friday. Okay, wonderful. Turning so 43. happy birthday. What are you doing for your birthday? Thank you. I am is it this? I, it, I, this, is, <laughs> this is it. This is it. I'm going to a movie and a yoga class, and then I'm going to pick my children up from school, and we are going to volunteer at a soup kitchen. Thank you. Thank you for your support. Taffy Burdester Actor, thank you for thank being you. our Thank you. It's been really great. That was yours three truly, talking with Taffy Brodesser-Ackner at the JCC of Manhattan a couple months back. Live show's coming up January 15th. We will be doing a free show for those of you who are in Washington, D.C. and the environs. It'll be at Washington Hebrew Congregation. It's also sponsored by the Association of Reformed Jewish Educators. Uh, free show. Come see us, whctemple.org for more info, whctemple.org. January 31st, we'll be at the Lawrence Family JCC in San Diego. Beautiful San Diego. Even if you're like elsewhere, if you're from Vancouver or St. Louis or Chicago, but you just you kind of want to escape the cold. Why not fly to San Why not make us a destination podcast live taping? Uh, January 31st. And then road trip up the West Coast with us. We'll be at the Stroom JCC in Seattle, February 2nd, doing a joint show with Dan Savage's Savage Love Cast. Hey, 
Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. We have a very Jewish, very dignified guest this week. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is the former chief rabbi of Britain of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth, and he's the author of more than 30 books on Judaism, Torah, and cross-religious relationships. Welcome, Rabbi. Great to be with you. Do I get to call you something else, like Lord? Um, We have to drop the Lord in America because, number one, uh, they don't actually know what it is. So when I come in and they look at my passport and at immigration, they say, how do you do, Mr. Lord? It's on your passport? It's on my passport, <laughs> of course. And then, of course, uh, the second time I spoke at the Fifth Avenue Synagogue, the rabbi at the time, Rabbi Kerma, um, said, you know, I mentioned that Rabbi Sachs was coming to my synagogue to my local interfaith group, and I was amazed at their interest. And I, I was surprised because all I said was this... Shabbat in the Fifth Avenue Synagogue will be celebrating the second coming of the Lord. That's it. <laughs> Plus, we, we fought a little war about these matters, didn't we? A British royalty and such. Well, look, since I'm such a fan of Hamilton the Musical, I hope we can still be good friends. I am not a supporter actively of George III. <laughs> So you're often described as the former chief rabbi of Britain, but that's not entirely true, right? That's a little bit touchy for non-Orthodox Jews. Can you tell us what your your full exact title was and what it meant? Chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth. That meant I was sort of the religious authority for the, the main communities in Britain and the Commonwealth. But it did mean, obviously, that among other things that I did, I was a kind of ambassador or a voice for the Jewish community, which meant that we had to try very hard indeed to speak in a way that people felt included. And I think that was a good discipline. You know, you trip once or twice, and then you get the hang of it. And I think we managed to do it quite reasonably. Before we dive into serious uh, stuff, 
I've always been intrigued. You are the keeper of halacha in in a in a kingdom which has its uh, own competing halacha, right? The the palace halacha, if you will. Uh, did your work ever kind of uh, take you in proximity with the royal family? And are there sort of kind of clashing uh, orders of observance that need to be? None regarded? of them were clashing. I mean, you can't you can't begin to imagine how sensitive. Um, the royal family are. In fact, the whole of British society, let, that the royal family, the prime minister, the Archbishop of Canterbury, could not be more respectful of Jews and of Judaism. You know, I had a very close and good friendship with Prince Charles, who's just celebrated his, his 70th birthday. Mazel tov to him. And um, I mentioned to be, he was he spoke, for instance, at the farewell dinner when I left office five years ago, a very, very beautiful speech he gave, one of the most remarkable I've ever heard. You can see it and hear it on YouTube. And um, I mentioned at the time that when, years earlier, my late father died, I received a thousand letters of condolence, but only one of them was six pages long and handwritten, and that was from Prince Charles. So, of course, I I've given the Queen a menorah and Prince Philip we know very well. And we've had Prince Harry in our home. So, yeah, we know them and they're incredibly respectful. He, if, if memory serves right, had a little um, faux pas a few years ago with a, a, a poor choice of Halloween costume or, or wearing Nazi uniform. It is extraordinary that William and Harry, who had been invited to a fancy dress party had not been taught that a swastika was a Nazi symbol. And he wore this at, uh, at a part, uh, fancy dress party. There was, of course, uproar. We were out of the country at the time, and we were picking this up on CNN and, and the press. We didn't know what had happened. When we came back, my protection officer showed me the Times, like how London <laughs> Times, front page of that day, saying Prince Charles said to Prince Harry, you have got to go and apologize to the chief rabbi. <laughs> when, when, when we reached home, there was a long, beautifully handwritten letter from Prince Harry apologizing. And then, indeed, a week or two later, he came. And Elena and I sat with him for an hour. And he's a lovely young man. Obviously, there was a big question mark over his school, Eton, the most famous school in Britain that had not taught him or any one of their kids what the Holocaust was. So I had to go to Eton and teach them about the Holocaust. And so what did you say to Harry when he comes over? Because you're someone you know well. It's not just tabloid drama to you. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's pretty much the same with, uh, with prime ministers or with... Um, Archbishops of Canterbury, you really discuss the issues of the day. And the great advantage of being a rabbi in these conversations is they know you don't want their job. And you're not going to ask them, why weren't they in church on Sunday? So it's very relaxing to talk to a rabbi. And so, you know, over the years, I developed a number of these conversations about the issues, you know, marriage breakdown, housing shortage, rise of crime, that kind of stuff. And we really found they loved 
hearing Jewish wisdom on this, which turns out to be not just many thousands of years old, but so up-to-date, it's sometimes just stunning. Were you starstruck at the beginning when your job suddenly required you to like meet with the queen casually? No. No. I think um, what's really hard is being a leader of Jews. <laughs> if you can handle Jews, the royal family, right. and everyone else is a walkover. Th- those guys yeah. are, yeah. I mean, that, 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 that was the tough one. You know, Moses, bless him, did not find it difficult to stand before Pharaoh. But you know, the first recorded words in the book of Exodus by a fellow Israelite to Moses. He's a teenager, right, in the uh, Prince of Egypt. Who appointed you our leader? He never even thought of being a Jewish leader at the time, and already they're criticizing his leadership. So that was the beginning. That was the first, but not the last, challenge to Jewish leadership. Speaking of being Salva Shofet, of being a leader of Jews, did you always know you wanted to be one? Do you always know you wanted to be a rabbi? I always knew I didn't want to be a rabbi. It was not on my radar at all at any stage in growing up. I, I went to university initially to study economics. After a year, I switched to philosophy, which was really my passion and still is in many ways. Or alternatively, if I really had to earn a living, I would become a lawyer. I met when I was 20 years old here in New York, Lubavitcher Rebbe who challenged me to lead as a student. I mean, I was just a second-year undergraduate. And that had a big impact on my life. But then 10 years later, um, I was deciding which career to choose. And my friends in Chabad said, go and ask the rubber. And I said, what do you do? They said, well, you write the rubber letter and give him three choices, and he'll tell you one or two or three. So I wrote the Rebbe a letter saying, should I be an economist or a professor or a fellow of my college teaching philosophy or a barrister? And uh, so I went, I wrote the letter, and then I went to see the Rebbe, and the Rebbe held up the letter and said no to one, no to two, and no to three, and challenged me to train rabbis. That was his mission. He wanted me to, at Jews College, it's like your REIT seminary in YU or like the various parallels in the non-Orthodox thing. Jews College is the world's oldest rabbinical seminary and it was producing rabbis from Britain and Britain was short of rabbis and the rabbi wanted me to train rabbis and he said, and you yourself must become a congregational rabbi so that they can come and see you in action and see how it's done. So at that point in 1978, at the age of 30, I gave up my three ambitions to be an economist, to be a professor or something, or to be a barrister. The interesting thing is, while I was walking in the completely opposite direction, I have given Britain's two economic lectures. I have given a seminar in economics to the professor of economics at Harvard. I did become a professor. I did become a fellow of my college. And Inner Temple, which is the place where barristers join, made me an honorary barrister, and I lectured on law to the 600 members of Inner Temple, including the Lord Chief Justice. So I didn't really expect that to happen. So in a way, by saying no to all three options, the Rebbe really said yes to all three options. Uh, Somehow or other, Hashem, divine providence, or the curiosities of fate 
have a way of getting us where we might want to be, but sometimes by a very roundabout route. Speaking about roundabout roots, um, you recently gave a speech to the House of Lords and you said about anti-Semitism uh, that it too had a roundabout route, right? It said it always starts with the Jews, but it never ends with the Jews. Observing um, Britain now, which is somewhat of a pastime or a sport for us American Jews here, uh, British anti-Semitism, what is it that you see? Is it as bad as we read here? No, no, um, it never is, because the bad news makes the news, so you miss out on the 99% of the good news. And any situation in which you are judging a place that you don't know intimately and that you're not a part of. I love the um, infinite wisdom of uh, judgments from a distance, you know, but its correlation with reality is limited. I said in the House of Lords, it's serious. But I didn't say it's serious because Britain is a hotbed of anti-Semitism. But when does it get dangerous? When three things happen. When it moves from the fringes of politics to a mainstream party. When that party does not lose national popularity as a result. And when people who protest against the anti-Semitism are not listened to, but are attacked and abused. And I said all three conditions are currently existing in Britain today. So that's what makes it dangerous. It has been legitimated. So even though levels of anti-Semitism in the general population are low, nonetheless the situation is politically dangerous and maybe 20 years from now existentially dangerous. You have to call a halt early on if you want to stop it. And do you think that's currently likely to happen? Well, what did happen was after I made my remarks... Theresa May, the current Prime Minister, and two previous Prime Ministers, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, came out straight away and banked me on this. So this was not just a, a Jewish voice crying in the wilderness. This was a voice backed by people with real authority. I have abs uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury came to our defence, uh, a wonderful non-Jewish member of Parliament, one of the elder statesmen of the House of Commons, resigned over this. So um, we got all the support that I felt we needed at the time. But that is not to say that we may not face a few turbulent years ahead. This is one of those moments in history, and America is affected by it as well, when the pilot says, fasten your safety belts, there's turbulence ahead. That's where the world is right now. So you've written a ton of books, um, from Not in God's Name to The Dignity of Difference and To Heal a Fractured World. What is the one book that you wish was sort of like required reading for Jews and non-Jews? Like, well, the book I'm always most attached to is the next one. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, once I've done a book, I say that's a goodbye, you know, because I live with certain questions. Like... Um, the book that's called in America, A Letter in the Scroll, which most people find the most important book for them. You in the States had the November 2013 Pew survey that talked about rocketing outmarriage and disaffiliation rates. But actually, you had that warning in America in 1991 when the North American Jewish Data Bank published its National Jewish Population Survey in 1990. 
showing that of young American Jews who married between 1985 and 1990 um, had married out and almost none of them were bringing up their kids as Jews. So that's why I wrote A Letter in the Scroll because I wanted to work out what would I say to a young Jewish man or woman as to why they should stay faithful to Judaism and try and create a Jewish home. Speaking of, of interfaith, though, it's, it's interesting because side by side with or alongside with being you know, such a proponent of interfaith dialogue, you, you also acknowledge that it has uh, somewhat stringent limitations, right? That there are real differences that in the kind of uh, gauzy talk of, oh, let's all be brothers and sisters, we don't always acknowledge. I have, uh, I think there are real limits to interfaith dialogue, real limits. The most important of which is that interfaith dialogue tends to be conducted in a rather rarefied atmosphere, usually in beautiful surroundings, halfway up a Swiss mountain or mm. something, among very open-minded religious representatives. And it kind of disintegrates when it gets down to right. ground level. So I call that face-to-face. And I'm a proponent of side-by-side. So, for instance, let's say you've got a bit of Birmingham where there are a lot of Muslims, Jews, Hindus and Sikhs jostling against one another and having a lot of tension between them. Let's say there's graffiti on the buildings or there are drug dealers on the streets or what have you. So you bring those, those different faith groups together to um, collectively address the problem. Now, that's street level, and that does not require dialogue. But the end result of it is friendship. And sometimes friendship is more powerful in resolving conflict than actual agreement on ideology or faith or what have you. So I'm a side-by-side guy. Speaking of people with differences, can you explain the differences between British Jews and American Jews? There, there are as many Jews in Britain as there are in where Chicago was on that. 300,000 Jews in Britain. There are 20 times as many Jews in America as there are in Britain. But Britain being so small numerically and geographically, it means you can actually organize something. So you've got a big problem. You get the um, six alpha males or alpha females of the community. You get them around a table, you know, and you say, guys, we're going to do this. And in one evening, you can change the world. And you can do that um, much more publicly by by the kind of broadcasting that I do on BBC News program, which is heard by seven to nine million people, but they are the people who are the movers and shakers of Britain. So you can have a huge impact. Now in America, it's so big and everything's fragmented and you just got to run around. And there's a lot of running around to do in America. So I spent the first three years here, after my chief revenue, 2013 to 2016, going right around America, asking every Jewish American I met, show me the Archimedean point from which I can move the world. And I discovered that in America, there is no Archimedean point. Now, that makes our cultures very different. So you've actually embraced uh, technology. You do TED Talks. You have a very active social media presence. And you, of course, podcast. What advice do you have? Like, we're a Jewish podcast. You're the, you're the main gig in town. Like, what do you have? What, what's specific about Jewish podcasting that you like? 
I don't know. Can I give you a step one back? Because I love learning Torah, okay? And it is my view that the major systemic changes in civilization happen when there's a revolution in information technology. Civilization was born with the invention of writing. Writing was invented independently in seven different civilizations. Mesopotamian cuneiform, Egyptian hieroglyphics, Indus Valley script, Chinese ideograms, the Mayans, the Aztecs, and the Minoans who had a script called Line, uh, Linear B. Um, the trouble with all those systems, which were pictograms or syllabaries, is that had a lot of symbols. So they took a long time to learn. I mean, Chinese has 40,000 different symbols. It can take 10 years to learn. So you could never imagine universal literacy. There was a knowledge class, and there was a great mass of illiterate. So you all, all of those writing-based cultures were hierarchical societies. Um, Judaism was born in the second revolution, which was the alphabet. And the alphabet is called the alphabet because of Aleph Beit. The first alphabet, known as Proto-Semitic or Proto-Sinaitic, discovered in the Sinai Desert by an English archaeologist called Flinders Petrie in 1903, roughly to the time of Avram Avinu. When you reduce the whole of knowledge to 22 symbols, you can envisage a society of universal literacy, and you can envisage a world in which every individual has a relationship with God, not just mediated through a hierarchy. Greek, was a thousand years later, was the first alphabet to have symbols for vowels. And that led to Greece, science, philosophy, because you process a language without vowels, with a different bit of the brain that you process. All, all alphabets without vowels are written from right to left, and all alphabets with vowels are written from left to right. And they en energize a different bit of the brain. Um, Christianity was born with the birth of the Codex, a sort of book with pages sewn together in, instead of a scroll. Reformation was a result of the invention of printing. Um, Gutenberg in, in mid-15th century, um, just in time for Martin Luther to, in 1517, nail his 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. All of Martin Luther's ideas had been present in John Wycliffe of Oxford two centuries earlier. But Wycliffe didn't have printing, so it stayed in Oxford, as good things sometimes do. <laughs> uh, but etc. you can look through. Nationalism was the result of national newspapers, etc., and the dictators of the 20th century through radio and television. So Internet and Internet Mark II and social media and all of this is going to change the whole world as profoundly as did the invention of printing. So I see every single invention, revolution in information technology as having not only huge social and economic consequences, they have huge spiritual consequences. We are going to relate to God and one another differently because of social media. And we know that they bring good news and bad news. Good news is it connects people like nothing ever before. Bad news is that over about two hours a day, any more than that you spend on social media, the more time you spend, the more miserable you become. Gene Twenge, iGen in University of 
California, San Diego. So all of this is full, and, and so you're right there where you have to be. You, in your podcast, are the pioneers of the future. And I wanted to say, okay, I'm a rabbi, and we only have grandchildren, so uh, we know how to operate some of these devices, and I suffer an inferiority complex because my phone is a lot smarter than I am. But putting all of that aside, you have to use this technology to deliver spiritual messages, moral messages, and above all, to bring hope to people who are scared at a world that is changing faster than they or we can bear. That was Jonathan Sachs passing through New York a couple weeks ago and sitting down with Liel and Stephanie. Before we get to Mazel Tov's of the week, uh, two orders of business. The first is, as we've been saying, we have a live show coming up in Seattle, and it's going to be a crossover live show with legendary sex columnist Dan Savage, who writes the Savage Love column and hosts the Savage Love podcast, with the Savage Love cast, uh, which is an extraordinary podcast. And um, if you don't know Dan Savage's work, go learn it right now. One of the things he does is he answers people's questions about not just sex and love and 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 but also courtship and romance. He's basically for all of your of your, you know, of your needs, of your social, sexual, romantic needs. But we should really knock his socks off with some fantastic yeah. Jewish sex questions. We want to bring questions to that show and we want the questions to be generated by all of you. Now listen, this is a little bit sensitive. So here's what we're gonna say. Um you can either send the questions to Dan, and if you go to, to Savage Love, you can find his email, but you can also send them to us. And if you send it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com, we give you a thousand percent guarantee. The only people who read that email inbox are the people who work on this show. And you can sign it with whatever fake bogus name you want, and we will never, ever, 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 ever reveal your identity. And we will pass Unless it, you want to. And we will pass it if on you're to into Dan that, that's fine too. with the bogus uh, name that you signed with. And you just like just trust. Um you can also, if you feel more comfortable, you know, send it to me personally, Moppenheimer at tabletmag.com, and I will anonymize it for everyone else. But we really would like to get Dan the questions, and they don't have to be Jew specific, but we want them to come from our Jewish audience about sex, love, and romance. So please send us questions for the Savage Love Show uh, that we're doing on February 2nd in Seattle. Other order of business before the Mazel In other live events. In other live loving events. Guess where I'm going. Where are you going? I am I'm going to Disneyland, baby. I'm going to Tel Aviv. I'm going to the the back to the to the motherland. Back to the motherland. Um, to to hang and luxuriate. And you know what? While I'm there, what you doing? I would love nothing more than to go drinking heavily with our beloved listeners on the Mediterranean. Have some hummus, have some pita, have some uh, birra. It'll be great. No big whoop. And so, anyone who is interested uh, in hanging out sometime in the next two weeks uh, with me in Tel Aviv, kindly. Email us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Uh, let us know if you're in, and we'll put you on a special, super secret, Mossad-generated Mossad <laughs> mailing list and uh, buy, you, buy you a couple of drinks. So if you'll be in Tel Aviv in the next couple of weeks for the special date and time to be announced, unorthodox tabletmag.com. I'm going to suggest that the subject line be hanging with Liel. <laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe you guys could go to that French restaurant Mise Known <laughs> while you're there. Straight out of Paris. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, what have you? I owe mazel tov to my bestie, Irene Pappas. She made a Hanukkah dinner this year that blew me away. I wasn't there for it, but I was amazed and impressed and a little terrified. She made latkes, kugel, and brisket. She is not Jewish. But but, but kind of is. But she basically Because she's is. Greek. Um, yeah, she's Greek. So And as Mark says, she reads Jewish. And I was just like, that's amazing. Please teach me how to make all of those things. Liel, any mazel tovs from you? Yeah. My uh, mazel tov is to a wonderful young woman named Shira Ishran. Um, she was 30 weeks pregnant, and she was severely injured in a terrorist attack a couple of days ago. Uh, doctors rushed her to a C-section, uh, saved her baby. And she is now recovering, and I wish her and the child refuah shlema, and may they both um, may they both join us soon uh, at home and, and with joy and laughter. Uh, my mazatavs, I got two. Uh, Jess Nock, wonderful listener, brought us those free mugs in Pittsburgh. She they just, are she amazing. Gifted us these Pittsburgh Jess, mugs. Thank you at our Pittsburgh live show. And Jess, thank you so much. And then I forgot. I wanted to give. So this is from our listener Rebecca Cinnamon Murphy, longtime supporter Love of the her. show. She asked me to give a Mazel Tov to uh, to Ginny Giles for the one year anniversary of starting her own small business. I was going to give that shout out in Pittsburgh. I forgot, but now I'm giving it out to tens of thousands of more Jews than were at our Pittsburgh live show, which was awesome, but not as big audience as the podcast. So uh, Jenny Giles, uh, please accept a big Mazel Tov from uh, all of us here at Unorthodox. And to conclude the Mazel Tovs, we'd actually like to play you the Mazel Tovs that we got at the end of the Pittsburgh show that we did. We went to Pittsburgh uh, live for the second night of Hanukkah. And at the end of the show, we got these wonderful Mazel Tovs from our listeners. Have a listen. Hi, I'm Alicia, and I'd like to give a mazel tov to my husband, Aaron. I flew here from Brooklyn today to support my friend, Elisheva. And for the second night of Hanukkah, I've given him his first uh, night alone with our two little ones. So <laughs> mazel tov to Aaron for getting it done. Mazel tov, Aaron. There we go. You're next. Hi, thank you. Ira Unger, and I want to give a shout out and a mazel tov to my wife, uh, Beth Unger. Uh, on her uh, uh, birthday, and uh, I think she's 37. <laughs> and uh, thank her for being uh, my rock and my hero, uh, helping me through my recent medical travails. Thank you. Oh, Mazel Tov. And I want to thank Ira for keeping alive the name Ira. There are no more Iras. I just want to thank you for being Ira, you know? It's, it's, it's a great name it is. because everybody remembers your name because it's so unique. That's right. Yeah. No, I think it's a fabulous name. Oh are God, they naming really? kids Ira in Brooklyn now? It's back? That's amazing. Sadie and Ira are both back. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Live long enough. That's right. So uh, my name is Matthew Coleman, and I, my mazel tov of the week is to my fiance, Jordy, who I will be marrying in a little less than a year, currently is an HUC student in Cincinnati, and she's just been uh, with me for the thick and thin of the past six weeks, and it's just been really touching just to have someone who will be there for me for everything. Oh, mazel tov, Jordy. So I'm uh, Miles Kirshner. Closer to the microphone, I'm, I'm still Miles Kirshner. There, 
It's a great sweater. I thank you guys for it. So my mazel tov is to Merrill Ainsman. Uh, Merrill is our Federation board chair here in Pittsburgh. And for a month, she represented us with tremendous grace and with koyach that, that could only have come from God. And then after it all, she had the uh, tremendous experience of celebrating the wedding of her beloved son, Jesse and Louise. So from the depths of, uh, of our despair and from representing us with such grace, uh, we all got to go to London and danced our hearts out. Oh, Mazel tov. Hi, my name is Ricky, and my Mazel tov is going to my sister Beth, who um, finished her coursework for her master's in speech language pathology today. All she has left is the internship. Oh, Mazel tov, Beth. Mazel tov, Beth. Hi, my name is Julie, and I'm sending my mazel tov out to um, our daughter, Sarah, and her husband, Ilan, and their children, Dina, Ashi, Leah, and baby Mendy, who's having his upsharing soon. Oh, happy haircut, Mendy. Mazel tov. Hi, everyone. My name's Maureen. I wanted to send out a mazel tov to Rabbi Sharon Henry, who's here tonight. She had a recent birthday and was not able to really celebrate it because of the recent tragic events. So I want to wish her a belated happy birthday and mazel tov for much happy happiness. Happy birthday, Rabbi birthday. Hey, everyone. First of all, uh, my name is Zach Greenfield. First time here. First time listening to you guys, so. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Uh, my mazel tov is for my girlfriend, Ellie, who's a current med student, and she's going on a ton of interviews for residency programs. So I just want to uh, congratulate on her on successful uh, interviews thus far and more in the future. Can anyone, can anyone here help her out with a residency? <laughs> Hi, my name is Eric Cohen. Um, my mazel tov is to my uh, younger brother, Michael, who is not the Michael Cohen that we've been hearing in the news. <laughs> Um, he, but between um, everything that happened in Pittsburgh, uh, I'm a member of New Light Congregation, and thank you. And also, um, on the other side of the country, I have a lot of family in Thousand Oaks, California, so they had all that to deal with. My brother just got married over Thanksgiving weekend, so mazel tov to him and his new wife, Beth Ann, for giving us all something to be happy about. Mazel tov. My name is Emily, and I'm a genteel that was dragged here by my friend, and I wanted to send a mazel tov to her, Ashley, because she got a new job, and she's going to go explore greener pastures. Mazel tov. Mazel tov, Ashley. I was really pleased to attend a bris this week. It was for uh, the son of Meir Rus and Nachum Shalman. I know a lot of people here know them, and the baby's name is Devir Tov, and it was wonderful to be at a simcha, and we should all have more. Yes. Mazel tov. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com, which you, by the way, should be reading all the time. If you're listening to this podcast, but you're not reading Tablet Magazine, then you live You're doing in, it wrong. You live in paradox and hypocrisy. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com, and why not put newsletter in the subject line? We often come to you live. We'll be coming to you live in Washington, Seattle, San Diego in the next couple months. To book us or to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. You should wear and carry unorthodox. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and onesies. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast, on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group, 
Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Sherrod Zalushkin, and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia steinert Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Tablet's editor is Alana Newhouse, and we're grateful for that. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams, and our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Uh, we haven't read letters in a couple weeks, but you should send us letters so that you can hear the mailbox theme again. Send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Rabbinic supervision this week by Washington-area rabbi, who we hope will be at our live show, Shmuel Hertzfeld. And we are so delighted to be back in the warm, embracing, loving hug of Argo Studios. Shalom, friends.